Welcome back to Money and Meaning, stories of unlocking the potential of global markets for impact. I'm your host, Alex Kravitz. On today's episode, I'm joined by Jewel Burke Solomon, the co-founder and managing partner of Colab Capital and the head of Google for Startups in the U.S. Having founded and sold her first company, PartPick, to Amazon in her mid-20s, Jewel has made a career out of investing in and helping to mentor traditionally underrepresented founders. Having experienced a number of challenges with investors while growing PartPick, Jewel set out to design an investment fund that better aligned the incentives of entrepreneur and investor. The result is Colab Capital, where she and her two partners are about to close their first $50 million fund. She also leads Google for Startups in the U.S., which provides entrepreneurs with tools, mentorship, and best practices to help grow their businesses. In this role, she launched the Black Founders Fund in 2020, which provided $5 million in non-dilutive capital to 76 Black-led founders. During our conversation, Jewel talks about the innovative structure of Colab Capital and the ways that her entrepreneurial journey shaped the direction of the fund. Let's jump into the conversation. Jewel, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Tell me about Collab Capital. Collab Capital is a new investment fund started by myself, uh, my partners, Barry Givens and Justin Dawkins. We all were operators. We built businesses over the past 10 years or so and really felt that there was something missing in uh, the venture capital market and we wanted to be the ones to create it. So we are specifically investing uh, in Black founders across the U.S. Uh, We're really focused in on what we call innovation companies. So all of us built businesses in the technology space, but we wanted to sort of widen uh, the the aperture a bit. And so we talk about companies um, that are product-based and software-based, but are really focusing in on solving a big problem in big markets uh, we think that we will be able to invest in about 50 companies over the next five wow. years. Uh, yes, <laughs> lots of companies. <laughs> um, and we're really excited about the angle that we're taking, which we think is in a better alignment between founder, investor, and on our side, investor and limited partner. We've been very thoughtful about the mechanisms and the structures to make sure that there is good alignment on all sides. Uh, so we're really excited about about what we're building. That's great, yeah. And we'll we'll get into some of the specifics in a, in a little bit. But uh, in addition to launching the fund, you are also the head of Google for startups in the the U.S. What what does that role entail? Yeah, so that role is um, Google for startups is a team that's actually been around for nine years. Uh, previously, was known as Google for entrepreneurs and was created with this idea in mind that there are emerging startup ecosystems across the world where Google should show up and really give the best of Google to the entrepreneurs in those uh, ecosystems. And so prior to my joining end of 2019, the team was primarily focused in markets outside the U.S., And I came in uh, to really focus on the emerging ecosystems inside the U.S. So uh, last year, my work was primarily focused on Atlanta. Of course, Atlanta is dear to my heart because I'm based in Atlanta, have been for the past eight years, and really believe in the startup ecosystem in Atlanta. 
Um, But we also have partners across the U.S. that represent places like Durham, North Carolina, uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota, different places where there are growing uh, startup ecosystems that need support. And we also have a focus or a lens around underrepresented startup founders. So our programs are geared toward Black, Latinx, and veteran-founded companies. And uh, we really focus on how do we get them the best of Google, whether that's products, people, best practices, all of those things. And we also focus on how do we get them kind of connected to who they need to talk to within Google to help grow their businesses, take those businesses to the next level. So we do programmatic support. Last year, I ran something called the Atlanta Founders Academy for 45 Atlanta-based founders. Uh, This year, we've expanded it. So it's just called the Founders Academy, and it's open to founders across the U.S. And we also, last year, in response to COVID-19 and the persistent incidences of racial injustice, we launched the Black Founders Fund, which was a $5 million a cash allocation to 76 Black-founded companies across the U.S. Uh, so we were able to give out awards between fifty dollars to $100,000 to those companies and pair that with support on from everything from cloud credits. Each of those companies also received Google Cloud credits as well as ad credits um, and kind of just these wraparound uh, support services to help them make sure that their businesses were able to make it through or are able to make it through this pandemic that doesn't want to go away. (laughs) (laughs) And um, just, you know, really help those businesses grow to the next level. So I'm really proud of that work because we were able to give sort of catalytic capital. Many of the businesses already have been able to leverage the money that we gave them and go on and raise additional funding. Um, And so that's really the intention there is for us to meet founders early and really help them grow and scale those businesses. So that's a little bit about the work that I do at Google. So both of your your roles, your two full-time jobs at, at Collab and, and Google for Startups, uh, focus on serving and supporting underrepresented founders. What, yep. what led you to these roles investing in and mentoring early-stage entrepreneurs? Yeah, I mean, I was one of these founders just a, a few, well, I guess it's been more than a few years ago, but I started a company called Part Pick, uh, came up with the idea in 2012 and built that business and had my own challenges and struggles in the process of building and really sort of made a vow to myself that if I ever could get on the other side of building that business, that I would go back and and be the investor and be the support system that I wish I had uh, because, you know, it was so challenging. Um, I I was able to raise some money, but even that was was super hard. And then when it came around to raising sort of that next round of funding, it, it just was impossible for me to get, you know, deal terms that I thought were fair and for me to kind of overcome some of the biases that exist in the system. Um, And so with my experience, I was able to build the business and then sell it to Amazon end of 2016. And that gave me the uh, financial ability to go and start investing, angel investing first. Um, And then it gave me the experience to kind of know 
from an idea to building out a team to raising some funding to getting great customers to selling the business and then all the way through to uh, integrating that technology into the Amazon mobile app. I kind of over seven years got a incredibly full picture of what the <laughs> entire journey of the entrepreneur looks like. And so that for me, I, I think it, it was kind of purpose-driven for me to say, okay, I have all of this experience and knowledge. Now I need to go back and make sure that people coming behind me or kind of next up, that they are mm-hmm. able to learn from the things that, the mistakes that I made, the the you know pitfalls and sort of the things that took me probably longer than they should have. I don't want them to have to go through those same things. And that's what's led me to the work that I do now, both at Google and at Collab Capital is how do we ensure that there is a really robust and supportive and helpful ecosystem for these this kind of next crop of black founders. Mm-hmm. So you've really lived the experience that you're you're supporting. Um, what did Partpick do? Yeah, Partpick was visual search for replacement parts. So we built technology to make it super simple uh, to find a part that you might need for a repair project. You could take a picture of it and we would tell you what it is and where you can buy it. We licensed our technology to distributors, retailers, manufacturers to embed inside their mobile apps and put on their websites. So our whole thing uh, actually born out of an experience with my grandfather where he was searching for a part. And of course, at the time I was working at a parts distribution company, so I should have been able to help him find it. I couldn't find it and I was really frustrated. I so wanted to solve that problem. And so, yeah, that that was part pick. Um, We were, you know, very scrappy. Um, I was able to recruit an incredible team of uh, really brilliant people to help me build it. And uh, we're able to build, you know, what I would consider to be groundbreaking technology around uh, visual part search. And why, why did you decide to sell part pick when you did? I would say selling part pick was definitely one of the hardest decisions I've ever made in my life. Um, still to this day, I kind of think about, I, de- I definitely think that I made the right decision, but I think the problem actually still hasn't been solved and it's it, to the extent that it could be. But I made the decision because for a few reasons. One, like I mentioned, I wasn't getting the support that I felt we needed on the investor side. Um, mm-hmm. I was kind of seeing term sheets that were not really standard or fair in my uh, estimation. And so I had a decision to make of if I wanted to raise more money and sort of compromise what I thought was right for the business, or if I wanted to take this offer, which you know was a good offer for um, actually selling the entire business. And at the time, I, my main goal was getting the technology out to folks like my grandfather to use. And so I saw a pathway where I could get the technology out to the masses through Amazon in a much quicker way than I could do it on my own independently. So that was, there's many other factors, of course, there's financial reasons mm. and the perspective of wanting to uh, make my investors hold the, the first investors and also get my team in a good spot. You know, we sold the business to Amazon and everyone on the team joined Amazon post-sale. So there are folks on the team that maybe could have never built a career at Amazon that are now thriving there, which has been great for them. So I think there are many reasons. And again, for me, I wanted to kind of get the fullness of 
the experience from idea to acquisition. And I think that's something that has served me incredibly well and put me in a good position to be able to help other people do the same thing. And how how did that experience growing part pick and in the exit you just described, how did that shape the strategy of when you're building and, and launching CoLab Capital? In a number of ways. Uh, so there are a few things that I'll call out. One, one of the things that was a design principle, I would say, with Collab was that we did want to ensure that there is good alignment between entrepreneur and investor. One of the mm-hmm. things that I experienced was that there was a lack of alignment between my goals and what I wanted for the business and what my investors would, thought was right for the business. And so that created tension, that created frustration, mm-hmm. and that ultimately led to this point where, you know, I said, I actually don't want to deal with these investors anymore or <laughs> deal with any new investors. So let me just go ahead and sell this business. Uh, but with with Collab, we've designed it in such a way where we are, we think, really well aligned with our um, entrepreneurs that we invest in from the start because we're putting a lot of things on the table up front. Um, so, for example, we talk about our equity, the percentage that we that we own. It's agreed upon by both parties. Of course, we have a target for every deal that we do, but it's something where we really kind of come into the relationship with a lot of transparency about um, where we'll land across the time of our investment. Um, so that's something that's a little bit different than you'll see in your typical fund. We also have this ability to be a little bit more flexible with our entrepreneurs as it relates to how we get returns back. So one difference with Collab is that we invest with a vehicle that we created called the Space Agreement. On its head, it looks very similar to a SAFE agreement, but the difference is we have a sort of trigger in place where if we see that a business is not going to be on this quote unquote venture scale sort of unicorn train, then we say, okay, let's change course here a little bit. Instead of trying to push this business to you know, grow at all costs and raise additional rounds of funding, which is what traditional, you know, most VC funds mm-hmm. will do, we say, actually, this business isn't a great fit for venture scale, but we think we can help this business get to profitability and grow profitably over time. So if we make that call early on, then we can start to employ this tool, which is a profit share. And so instead of being concerned about getting our returns through an exit or through, you know, marking up the investment because they've gone on to raise additional funding, we are able to get our returns through a profit share. And so we make that determination in partnership with the entrepreneur and allow them, you know, to help us help them <laughs> in a way to build mm-hmm. the best business uh, for that entrepreneur and for that that company. And so that is something that's a little bit different. And again, guided by the experience of honestly feeling like I was pressed up against a wall in my investor conversations and not really having any options. And, you know, what we've done now is built a mechanism where we think it gives a bit more optionality to for folks to build the business that makes the most sense at the time. And, you know, one of the other things we really like about our model is that there are entrepreneurs who are building businesses because they want to build generational wealth. And one of the things that, you know, is a, is a pillar in building generational wealth is being able to pass businesses down in families. And that's something that you really can't do if you're on a venture track. If you're building a business that you want to grow and scale to 
$10 billion plus, you're likely going to exit that business at some point, either through IPO or an acquisition. So there's no room really for passing the business down in families if you have to exit it. So in our model, with the profit share, if if the entrepreneur goes kind of the profit share track, then there is an opportunity for them to uh, buy us down from our equity position through the profit shares and therefore be in a situation where they own, at the end of the day, 90 plus percent of the business and therefore have the ability to you know, pass it down to their kids one day or use it as a, a mechanism for generational wealth, which we think is really interesting. And it goes along the lines of our perspective that through investing in Black entrepreneurs, we have the opportunity to help communities and families build wealth. And that's kind of the reason that we're doing this at, at the end of the day. Yeah, that focus on unicorns or, or hockey stick growth that, that you talked about is not particularly entrepreneur friendly, right? I mean, most VC models are 20-ish percent of companies take off and, and exit quickly and the rest of them fail, right? Yeah. So it's aligning that incentive between entrepreneur and investor is really important. Uh, you, yeah. you called it a space agreement? Yes. Is that right? What does that stand for? It stands for shared profits and collaborative endorsement. So the shared profits piece is what, again, what we employ if we see that the business maybe shouldn't go the venture out or doesn't have the growth numbers to justify going and raising a Series A. So that's the trigger point that we say, okay, instead of trying to help this business raise more and more funding, dilute the founders more and more, let's just help this business get to profitability and that's where the, the share of profits comes in. And then the collaborative endorsement piece is uh, where we bring in what we call a growth partner to help the business. And this could be an industry expert. Um, this could be someone who kind of from a technical perspective knows a lot about the space that the, the business is in. And that's really us, again, trying to ensure that the, these businesses are successful. Because to your point, you know, current VC models expect that the vast majority of the businesses will go to zero, will fail. And our perspective is that doesn't have to be. There's a a world in which there are many companies in the portfolio that, again, may not be that unicorn status, but still can grow to be great businesses. And we don't want to let those businesses just fall by the wayside. We want to employ strategies so that those businesses can also be successful. You talked about the biases that you faced when when raising venture funding at Parpick, and venture capital is notorious for the the racial and and gender biases. I think it's you know less than one percent of funding that goes to to black women, such as yourself. How has your experience raising capital as a fund manager compared to the experience raising capital as an entrepreneur? Both are hard. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I would say raising as a fund manager is is different. Different in a couple ways. And some of this is hard to say because the dynamics of this past year have just been so wild with the pandemic and with, um, you know, the incidences from June with George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery and the list goes on and on. I've had two pretty different experiences because the first we started fundraising for a collab middle to end of 2019. And from that point until March or until June, 
you know, I had one experience. And then from June of last year until now, I've had a pretty different experience because there's so much more interest and attention on Black fund managers, and particularly us as Black fund managers who are investing in Black-led companies. So um, there has been a shift. I will say there's definitely been a shift as far as interest, attention, speed. It took us a year and some change to raise the first $8 million. And within the last, call it six months, we are you know pretty close to closing the fund. So we went from $8 million in, or even maybe a little less than that in June to now, I don't know when this is going to air, but by end of March of this year, we plan to have the fund closed. So, uh, and we're raising a $50 million fund. Wow. So <laughs> if that gives you any sense of the <laughs> acceleration that's happened. Congrats. That's great. Thank you. And I think part of that has been because of the macro uh, things that are going on. And also part of it has been because we've gotten probably a lot better at pitching it over time. And we've gotten some investments under our belt. I had the opportunity to really focus in on who is the right person to be pitching to, because I think initially we didn't really know who it would take to our vision. We're pitching a few things at once with us uh, being first-time fund managers. That's already sort of a hurdle to overcome. And then us investing solely in Black entrepreneurs that prior to June was a big hurdle to overcome. And then, you know, us doing this slightly different model is also something that, you know, people had to get their their minds around. So there's all the differences of what we're doing on the backdrop of the fact that it's a pandemic and we haven't been able to actually meet people in person. Basically all the money that we've raised, we've done over Zoom and Google Meets. Um, so <laughs> it's kind of it's kind of a wild circumstance. So it's hard for me to even compare because the difference when I was raising for part pick, I was on planes every other day, you know, flying all across the country to meet people. Um, and I just, I haven't even been able to do that with the pandemic. So lots of, of difference. And I think that another one last thing I'll say is that I have a lot more confidence this time around raising because I've one done it before and I have so much conviction in mm-hmm. what we're doing and what we're all about at Collab. It's a lot easier for me to pitch it because I I just really believe the the market opportunity that we are capturing with our thesis. So, it's a it's a little bit different dynamic even with me as the the person that's that's trying to sell it. <laughs> One of the um the funders is the the Kaufman Foundation's Capital Access Lab, who we've we've had Philip and Agnes on the show and talked a little bit about they're investing in traditionally underrepresented entrepreneurs, which we've talked about a little bit in terms of race. But another interesting focus of theirs is, is on geographic diversity. Um, and you, you mentioned that you're based in Atlanta. And I know that you're also looking at companies in, in cities such as Detroit and, and Baltimore and outside of the traditional venture hubs of basically Silicon Valley, New York, and, and Boston. Um, what, do, what do you see as the value of investing in regions that are typically underserved by the the venture community? Yeah, I mean, I think there's so much value. There's so much opportunity. And literally, it's a market opportunity. If people are not there and they're not deploying capital, but entrepreneurs are there and they're building great businesses, then 
there is sort of a an arbitrage opportunity mm-hmm. at play where you can get access to these entrepreneurs and have less competition for the deals, but still be able to help them build great businesses and build them in a way that's more uh, cash efficient because the cost of living and the cost of talent is lower. And you're able to access some of these cities have a huge pool of uh, corporations that are that are there that have headquarters there. So you're able to help your companies get access to customers in a way that's a little different than if you were in Silicon Valley, only being able to sell to you know, the large tech companies because that's who primarily is headquartered in those places. So I think there's a lot of opportunity at play when you're investing in cities that are not necessarily the hubs today, but likely will be interesting hubs where you can even make bigger impact because you're not having to compete as much for the the talent and the deals. Mm-hmm. And you built PartPick in Atlanta, right? So you're you're familiar with the the Atlanta tech entrepreneurial scene. Yeah, it's funny. It's it's so it's great, but it also makes me laugh that I was waving this flag about building outside of Silicon Valley. And I've been mm-hmm. waving the flag since 2013. And at the time, <laughs> everyone said, you're crazy. You need to go out and build this in, in Silicon Valley. And I said, no, I, I won't. One, because I'd already lived there. So I know from a personal perspective, it wasn't really for me. And two, it's like, no, my customers are here or in the Midwest. Um, the talent that I want to recruit is at Georgia Tech. All the the reasons that you would need to build a great business, it's like I have them all here and I really like Atlanta. So why would I move? (laughs) Um, And I think that's more people, especially I think the pandemic has kind of forced this where more people are like, hey, I can live close to family and in a place that has a lower cost of living and still build a great business. Why wouldn't I do that? So I think it's uh, the tide is certainly turning there. And I'm excited uh, that we get to take advantage of that from the perspective of kind of being there with the entrepreneurs as they're thinking about where they actually where they actually want to build their businesses, not where they tell us that, that we need to be building. Mm-hmm. And where the customers are and where the talent is, as you mentioned. And exactly, yeah. yeah. What, speaking of some of that, you know, when I, when I hear capital, I tend to think money, but there are other forms of non-financial capital that are really important to support particularly early stage entrepreneurs. How, how are you using these non-financial forms of capital at, at Collab? Yes, that's a big part of what we're doing as well is that we understand there is a huge access to capital and financial capital issue, mm-hmm. but there's also access to uh, what we think about as relationship capital, you know, access to networks. That's a huge problem as well. And so we think about solving that uh, through our LP base is one is one way. We've been very intentional about bringing people who have access to various industries, have deep Rolodexes of people that they can call and help us to get our portfolio companies into the doors that they need to be in. Uh, that's a huge thing. I think that's really kind of the difference maker is not just getting the check, but knowing who to call to, to get the deals done. And that's what we want to help our companies do as well. And then also one kind of competitive advantage we have as a fund is that all of us have been operators. So we can really dive in with the businesses. Um, our I call our secret weapon is my partner, Justin. He's been a software 
engineer for the past 20 years. So when it comes to kind of technical enablement and helping the businesses build their roadmaps and really helping them understand what's what's it going to take to scale the companies from a technical side, that's something that we can dive in with. So we've been very uh, specific and intentional about how we've kind of built our partnership to be helpful to the businesses, built our LP base as well uh, to be able to make connections for the businesses. And we think all of that together is how we really move the needle for these companies. You mentioned that the fund is close to close, but what are ways that listeners can support the work that you're doing, whether through investment or or through other forms of, of capital, as we discussed? Yeah, so uh, I mentioned our first investment is a product company, so everyone can go out and buy a hairbrella for the mm-hmm. person with hair <laughs> in your life who wants to protect their hair <laughs> from the, the elements. <laughs> um, so that's one thing I think, you know, a big thing is the biggest gift you can give to an early stage company is to be their customer. Uh, so, you know, we have Hairbrella, we have Music Techworks, who is selling into the, into music supervisors and uh, content creators. If that is you, then go and check out what they're doing. Uh, the product is called rightsholder.io. Uh, so I'd love for, for you all to support what they're doing. Um, and then outside of that, you know, we're constantly trying to sort of build this bench of uh, subject matter experts and people that we can tap for our portfolio companies. So if that's you, we'd love to meet you and get you on our roster of people that we can reach out to if our portfolio company needs help with UX or with go-to-market strategy or with cloud support, like whatever it is, we, we always want to have uh, this roster of people that we can tap into. And then, you know, we, we're almost done with fundraising, but we're not quite. So if there's anyone who's interested in taking a look at what we're doing from an investment perspective, we're always having conversations on, on that side as well. That's great. Is, is there anything that I haven't asked that you'd like to mention before we sign off? I think you've asked all the questions. <laughs> <laughs> asked some really good questions. Um, you know, just one more plug for yeah. what we're doing at Collab Capital. I'm really excited about it. I'm really excited that the Kauffman Foundation, just to give them a shout out, they were our first LP and I really worked with us. Yeah, yeah. Worked with us over several months to get our uh, legal formation in a good mm-hmm. shape. And what they've done, it should be a model for other foundations. Um, because one thing that I have noticed in pitching lots and lots of foundations is that oftentimes they are very much sort of regimented and uh, stuck in the, the ways in which they've always invested. And I think in order to get different outcomes and to reach different people, you have to really take a look at the criteria and um, what you're, you're driving toward and maybe make some changes. And so I think it's it's really a great model to look at what the Kauffman Foundation has done with the Capital Access Lab. And I hope that other foundations, other institutions will uh, take that as a inspiration and do other similar things. So. Yeah. And, and congratulations on on being, you know, on the fund, just about being closed, on being, I think, one of the first Black women to to sell to a, you know, a major acquirer like Amazon. And, you know, hopefully you've helped kind of make the path easier for for those that that follow. And, and I just want to thank you for, for all the amazing work that you've done. 
Thank you. I I take no pride in being the first of anything. I think the most important thing is to make sure that I'm not the last. So Mm -hmm. that is the, the nature of my work. That is what I'm going to continue to do. And I really just appreciate the time and the the platform to chat more about it. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Money and Meaning. I hope that you enjoyed the conversation with Jewel Bark-Solomon, the managing partner of Colab Capital and head of Google for Startups in the U.S. If you're interested in learning more about any of the topics discussed, check out our blog at socapglobal.com, where we'll link to information about the Black Founders Fund, about Colab Capital, the previous episode with Philip Gaskin and Agnes Dasevich from the uh, Kauffman Foundation's Capital Access Lab and other relevant resources from the discussion. If you enjoyed the conversation and think that others in your network might as well, please share it on social media and tag us at, at SoCap Markets. If you want to get in touch with me, you can reach me at moneyandmeaningpodcast at gmail.com. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode. 